Hi, my name is Ryan Duncan Ayala. Hi, my name is Annika Perez Krikorian. Hello, my name is Jacob Santos. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to Affirmative Reaction. Reaction. Hello, and welcome to Affirmative Reaction, a critical theater pod from a BIPOC theater squad. I'm Ryan Duncan Ayala. I'm Annika Perez Krikorian. And I'm Jacob Santos. Here we are. Week number six? Time has um, no meaning anymore. Listen, in a global panorama, I think we'll be fine. In a Panasonic, what are we to do? You know what we need to do, actually? Mm-hmm. Hot takes! Let's start off with our weekly theater hot takes. Hot takes is our segment where we take our hottest, hottest, spiciest, spiciest theater hot take and present it um, with absolutely no explanation. And if you would like an explanation of our hot takes, you may compensate us for our labor and Venmo us. Our Venmos are in the show notes. All right. Um, Does anyone have a burning desire to go first? Ooh, Ryan, Ryan coming in hot. Let's go. What is it? Hit us with it. So this is this is a hot take and might just like get me canceled from my career, but um, but it also might be like a hot take that some people just don't know anything about. So hmm. let's talk about no longer campaigning for award shows. Ooh. Ooh. Wow. It is a horrible practice. It is just ridiculous and it should stop like yesterday. I'm done. He said, wow. for your consideration, for your flop. I don't know how that didn't work. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, no context. No context for that one. All right. I guess I'll go next. Similarly, I guess my theater hot take also comes for the producers of the theater world, which is to say that a status report, Broadway uh, seems to be back up to its old tricks. So I feel like looking at the shows that are that are slowly starting to emerge from the ground, on the whole, we've learned nothing, guys. I'm seeing everybody just go back to business as usual after all that talk. So I guess it was all just talk. All right, Jacob. <laughs> Ooh, damn. Okay, so my theater hot take for the week is theater people stop saying theater is coming back. If you want me to explain more, you can pay me to explain more. That's all I got. Wow. The Amen. shortest hot take in history <laughs> and the spiciest one at that. Wow. Mm. That's why we're here. All right. Well, yes. deep, deep, long sigh to get into this crazy play that we're doing this week. Let's get into it. What's our play this week, y'all? Yes. So this week we read The Blacks by... Jean Genet and Jean <laughs> so Genet I, Ramsey, John, <laughs> Mr. Gene Genie himself from the David Mr. Bowie Gene song. Genie. Yeah, so I'm going to try to give y'all a plot summary of this, but this is a very uh, absurd piece. So, and it very much exists in the theatrical traditions of like theater of the absurd, theater of hatred, and expressionism. So, there is a plot, but it isn't. Ex- explicitly clear or linear it's more interested in like causing a reaction in audience members which is it's like that type of theater so I'm going to try to give you what what this one's about but just know when we're talking about it we're going to talk more about the ideas present so like you don't need to be like oh this idea is interesting I wonder what plot element it's connected to or plot part just forget about the plot (laughs) plot's a dirty word for this episode so 
Getting into the story of it all. So a troop of black actors gathered together on stage to recite a story of, oh, I should, before I get into it, trigger warning, we're going to be talking about, you know, assaults, racism, all that stuff is coming up in this very uh, scatterbrained plot summary. So as I was saying, uh, a troop of black actors come together to recite a story of a woman being raped and murdered by a black man in front of a court of white elites. So every actor in the play is black, including the members of the court who are in whiteface. And the story of the murder is drenched in racial stereotypes about black people and the black characters play into these stereotypes and tropes that the court expects of them and maybe even the audience members who are white of a dangerous black man who preys on white women and other racially charged language and ideas. And the story sort of seeks to investigate the word black and white, mainly how the word black is connected to negative and evil words, and while white is associated with light, virtue, and other positive language. But yeah, a lot of absurdist action ensues, such as one character giving birth to dolls that resemble members of the court, which are hung up on stage. But when we might get into it, I don't know. And then eventually we find out an entire separate trial is happening where a fellow Black member is being executed for betraying the group. And near the end of the story, the queen of the court and Felicity, one of the Black performers, face off in a discussion about white versus Black, where Felicity seeks to redefine and recontextualize Black as being something beautiful. And we eventually find out the plan all along was to turn the tables on the court of the whites and to send them all straight to hell. So think like working class rising up to eat the rich and like a too long didn't read version of this is like a troop of black actors play the fool or the clown for a court of white folks and then ultimately play them for fools by reversing the social order and sending the whites to hell. Y'all, if you're confused, we were too, but we'll we'll get into it. That's just, just a little short thing. So let me give you a little bit of a background of the play. So, of course, the playwright is Jean Genet. It was written in 1958, and it was actually, he wrote it to commemorate Ghana's 1957's independence, which is interesting. Uh, it was first performed in Paris in 1959. And then the play had its first U.S. premiere in 1961 at the St. Mark's Playhouse in New York City. And The Black Shaw was actually the longest running non-musical play off-Broadway in the 60s. And the cast was stacked. It had James Earl Jones, Cicely Tyson, and Maya Angelou, just to name a few. So after that long run, it hasn't been produced many times since then, but there was a 2007 production at the Theatre Royale in London, Stratford East, and this was like a remixed, re-updated hip-hop slam poetry version of the play, which was, it sounded interesting from what I read about it. So, and also like before we get into our analysis, I'm going to give a little background about Jean Genet, because I feel like knowing a little bit about him is going to be helpful for the ideas that are present. So this is, you know, it's the Blacks, but Jean was a white man and he was a French gay playwright. And he grew up orphaned and experienced homelessness very often in his time growing up, which led to a life of crime. Uh, he was often labeled a vagabond, which is basically like a homeless person who often has to commit crimes to survive. Um, he was also a sex worker during that time, and he ended up being arrested so many times, in fact, that other French artists at the time had to appeal for him appeal to the courts because they wanted to give him a life sentencing because he had been arrested so many times. And one of those uh, French artists that appealed for him was Pablo Picasso. So he did not go to jail for the rest of his life. 
he came to America and worked alongside the Black Panthers for a few months, and he assisted people like Angela Davis for the Prison Information Group. He was a political activist in his own country of France, and he protested against police brutality there. So that's our background. I know y'all are confused, but let's let's give some context and let's let's dive into it. Yeah. Well, first. I will say the context behind Jean Genet really helps me out because I mean, you read the the first like the prologue note to this show, and I'm like, that's us. I'm just gonna read it. Let's just read it. This play, written, I repeat, by a white man, is intended for a white audience. But if, which is unlikely, it is ever performed before a black audience, then a white person, male or female, should be invited every evening. The organizer of the show should welcome him formally, dress him in ceremonial costume, and lead him to his seat, preferably in the front row of the orchestra. The actors will play for him. A spotlight should be focused upon the symbolic white throughout the performance. But what if no white person accepted? Then let white masks be distributed to black spectators as they enter the theater. And if the blacks refuse the masks, then let a dummy be used. I mean, he's very aware of the fact that, like, this is absolutely to make white people cry and bleed out their eyes and no one else. I think the dynamic would be interesting to have, like, an entire Black audience and one white audience member. Fairview sort of draws into a lot of what this play is about, too. Like, the audience makeup of this play is very important. Mm -hmm. So to have the playwright in 19... what, 58? Yeah. Sort of explicitly having these very conscious ideas about how an audience defines a play, um, which I feel like weren't those conversations weren't really happening in most theater around that time, is really smart and really bold. So I, I felt immediately like I was like, okay, so this guy gets it at least a little bit. I can at least trust him to know what he's doing in this instance. Yeah, my first reaction to this play, so it's it's super fascinating. Like the first third of it, I was like, I'm lost. I don't know what's going on. I'm just seeing a lot of <laughs> a lot of racism, but and like the confusion never really goes away. But then once you get like to the middle part and like at the end, you're just like, oh yeah, you were trying to to say something. But I think this show, like reading this play. It's funny. I feel like we have like a succession of plays that we've read that are like specifically targeting white audiences. So I'm really fascinated about this play's spot in the canon and basically like this lineage of like plays about black folks that are trying to make white audience members aware of their whiteness and critique that whiteness. We've read Slave Play, we read Fairview, but this one came so much before so I'm interested in the ways that like this started the conversation and like the ways that I feel like Fairview and Slave Play might have been better in the way of like critiquing whiteness and like talking about these racial biases and stereotypes because at least for me absurdism isn't really my gig if you're trying to say something I'm more of the kind of person who likes someone to just go out and say it like very explicitly and I feel like Slave Play and Fairview does that whereas this is more trying to create you know a, like a chemical reaction in the audience members so like they can feel the discomfort in themselves rather than like explicitly explicitly telling them what they should be hearing but yeah that was like my first reaction 
Right. Absurdism feels very primal, um, not to use a loaded word in co- the context of this play. But I, yeah, I agree. Like absurdism is not really my bag. And I wonder how much of that is just because I wasn't exposed to absurdism in my theatrical upbringing, so to speak. Like it really was realism is that bitch and anything else is purely academic or confusing. So I, I you know, I will admit that like I wasn't really exposed to absurdist work in a way that made it feel meaningful to me as I was like coming into my identity as a theater person but I sort of recognize the way that absurdism functions differently than realism like I agree that like in my heart of hearts I want someone to like explain it to me I'm I'm a very relationship driven theater artist so I want relationships I want to like be invested in characters um emotionally and absurdism is absolutely not about that and like theater of the absurd and theater of cruelty are really not about that I feel like they're about reducing characters to like stereotypes so that you feel like the pain of seeing a stereotype run into a wall if that makes sense Mm -hmm. like that absurdism is like look at this like a sad little caricature of a person and watch them destroy themselves that's you (laughs) (laughs) like that's very much what I felt like so you know for me I was like oh good there's a like kind of a love story that was like the one thing mm-hmm. <laughs> I latched onto. It wasn't even a love. It was like, it wasn't even a love story, but virtue and, uh, oh my gosh, virtue and village. and village. Yes. Which I think are in, are very loaded as character names. Also in that Broadway, off-Broadway production played by Cicely Tyson and a young James Earl Jones, which <laughs> if you ain't seen no pictures of young James Earl Jones, <laughs> mm-hmm. that man was gorgeous Mm -hmm. and Cicely was too damn anyway Mm -hmm. yeah absurdism is sort of hard for me just because it doesn't give me any relationships to or like characters to sort of be let into but I appreciated this play for like its frankness Fairview and Slave play do it more for me I don't think they would have been here without this play Mm -hmm. I don't think absurd absurdism is any of our three's thing unnecessarily. I will say that sometimes I do love walking into a play and not knowing what the hell just happened and then walking away from it and and being okay with that. Um, So in that way, this play really did it for me. Jacob and I were talking um, the other day and I was like, man, reading these classical plays is tough for me. And it's like, yeah, watching this, I could probably, you know, get behind it for sure. And it'd probably be a little bit easier for me to digest. But I think that there is something special about about these kinds of plays and, and what they lead into for the world that we live in now. Even if the plays that we're consuming now aren't adaptations of this, but like led to the world that brought plays like Fairview and Slave Play to life. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the thing that stuck out to me and I loved most about this show was just, this is going to sound a little out of pocket, but I'm going to explain it. It's just how anti-white the show is. And then like how much the show like hates the like elite class. And I feel like me saying that I should explain some of the things going on here and some differences. So like, as I said, in the plot summary, some of the characters are in whiteface. So like there's like this distinction between like blackface and whiteface and anti-blackness and anti-whiteness that I should clarify. So for for anyone who might be listening and thinking like, 
why would you do whiteface? Isn't that just as offensive as blackface? Well, no, it's not because blackface is a tradition that is like created out of oppression and racism and racism is prejudice plus the power to oppress. Whereas whiteface does not have that history behind it. Like it's not meant to oppress or make fun of anyone because of their race and oppress them because of it. Um, it's usually just done for comedy, whereas blackface was done for comedy, but also to oppress people and demean them. And then anti-blackness is very much the same. It's steeped in systemic oppression, racism, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas anti-whiteness is actually just like a coping mechanism for like black and brown people to survive whiteness and white supremacy and to distance themselves from it and actually reject whiteness's place in the social order so it's more it's not like you know like nick cannon went on that really wild rant where he was like saying super anti-semitic things and like really pseudoscience of that like that makes white people inferior this isn't that kind of anti-whiteness that's just very weird stuff that he did this is more of people just trying to reject white supremacy and just survive in a white supremacist society so like that's what I appreciate about the show because throughout so much of the plot you are hearing these anti-black statements and these actors are living out these anti-black and racist stereotypes for this wide court of white characters and you're just like oh this is really weird and uncomfortable and like I didn't say before like the full title of the play is The Blacks A Clown Show uh, so like these characters are clowning and playing these clowns to sort of distract the elite to, so they can make moves to then like eat the rich and basically like overturn the social order and I was like work to the point where like they send them to hell at the end and I was just like oh okay so this show does not like white folks which is so interesting because it's written by a white man but it's for white people and like knowing a little bit about his background like him experiencing class oppression I feel like helped him in a way to to write this but then like there are some limitations where like colonialism isn't addressed in this show and I feel like that's a really important context for how this class divides ended up being what it is and how it exists but yeah this show just it goes for the whites it really goes for it it really is a meditation on like power and the ways that colorism and storytelling like and the way that we portray uh color like bleeds bleeds into every facet of our life and like really dictates how power structures are built like duh but also in that time it would have probably been a lot more radical to sort of confront that idea um, and it still is radical because it's so clear it's so audacious fully being like yes we are doing this play for you our white people Shh, don't say that you'll upset the white people so it really is more about like blackface versus whiteface in terms of like how color and power intersect and create the really like harsh social and cultural divides and power structures um, and it's an interesting conversation that to have like when we're talking recently about like digital blackface talking about you know the ways that people use reaction gifs of black people like often and how that actually sort of is still using using black bodies as entertainment so it's like it's still a conversation of like when we put on blackness what are we putting on when we put on whiteness what are we putting on yeah and i think for the digital blackface point that you made you know using the reaction images emojis there is some white people that use black emojis and i don't 
understand. Uh, uh, they do. They, okay, so, quick story. I was talking to a guy on a dating app once, and he used like a dark skinned black emoji and like in his profile said he was white. So I was like, oh, is, is like your profile wrong? Like, are you actually like, are you black? And do you, because it says white right there. And he was like, oh, no, I'm white. So I was like, oh, did you accidentally use the wrong emoji color? And he was like, no, I used the right one. I was like, but you're white, but you're using a black emoji. And he was like, yeah, just like the black color and the black emojis. Like, I feel like I connect to it more. Like it represents me more and like I had to like block right there because I wasn't even going to get into like how this white man felt more connected to blackness and he felt like he could use black emojis it was sinister so yeah that is something that 100% completely happens that is some Sue's from Fairview energy if I've ever heard it and yeah I mean it's just an issue and and specifically there's a video going around Twitter that explains it better than I ever could it definitely can end up reinforcing some of these stereotypes just like this play talks about. Yeah, and this show is often called like a post-minstrel show. So I guess that would maybe make Fairview like a post-post-minstrel show, which is interesting, just like that succession of ideas. And like, I'm thinking about the scene where, you know, I'm going to say village because like that's what I read it as, but I read in one place that it's pronounced village, but that, I don't know if that's 100% true. So I'm just going to say village. And if that's wrong, I'm so sorry, y'all. You can drag me on Twitter as always. Um, so like when village is like reenacting part of this murder of the white woman, one of the characters, one of the other black characters on stage says, oh no, you look too pale and gets black shoe polish and basically puts him in blackface. Which was interesting that like, that that character said like, oh, you, you look too to you look too pale so like that's like the ideas of like whiteness versus blackness and what blackness represents you look too pale so you you don't look like you would commit this crime so like we need to blacken you up to do this that's like how it's like attacking or like highlighting some of these preconceived notions that people have that like oh darker skinned people are ones who are going to commit crimes which goes into racial profiling and people on the street so it's just like there's so much loaded into these two words. I remember I was taking this anti-racism workshop and the facilitator, who was a black man, we love to see it. So it wasn't one of those, you know, <laughs> you know, where Suze came in to, to teach us about anti-racism. And he basically like went down a long list of like every single word that attributes like blackness to something negative and like everything that attributes whiteness to something positive. And like all of us were gagged because like there was some of the... <laughs> <laughs> Ryan just said it in the chat, Robin D'Angelo. <laughs> but yeah, there was even like some words where like you didn't even realize like the connection because like that's how ingrained it is into our society. Oh yeah, and like some of those examples were like black sheep. So like that being something negative, a white collar job being something that's more positive. Like those are the things I was like, oh, because I did, I was like white collar job. Yeah, I'd never even like thought <laughs> about that so i was gagged in that workshop which you know usually i'm not when stopped by white people anyways yeah so like i like the back of the play the published version there's like a, a little quote from a review and it says like janae's investigation of the color black begins where most plays of this burning theme leaves off and i was like oh that's so interesting like this story is an investigation of the word blackness and of the word whiteness so there's so many instances 
throughout the play where like they're specifically putting the word black in a place they're specifically putting the word white in a place and it's usually for most of the play blackness is connected to something negative whiteness is connected to something beautiful until we get to the end where felicity goes on this amazing monologue where she basically says like well i don't remember off the top of my head but basically like in that monologue she recontextualized blackness to be something that's positive which was so good i also just want to quickly acknowledge something that you mentioned from the review begins where most plays leave off I don't think Howard Tubman from the New York Times intended for that to be such like a drag of the theater scene in America, both in the 1950s and today. There are so many plays that that start the conversation of race and then just like, okay, that's enough. Like we can't handle more than that. And I, I just find that's like incriminating to say like this, this play picks up where it leaves off. And I don't know, that's just like a, a thought. Do y'all do y'all agree with that in any way? Yeah, I think, well, I think that the thing that, that Janae does or investigates that's different from a conversation that we have is like race ultimately boiling down to color, which is sort of a thesis. And we can we can talk about whether that thesis is correct or not. That's sort of not the point, right? Most theater starts with if you're black, you're black. And if you're white, you're white. And if you're brown, you're brown. But there is a spectrum of color. And what we're talking about is if you're light, you're privileged. And if you're dark, you're oppressed or like you're, you're gross or evil or whatever, like, like really ultimately boiling it down to like whiteness. You can be white and still be black because of color, right? Like what do those words even mean? The first sort of like show note in this play says, um, one evening, an actor asked me to write a play for an all-Black cast. But what exactly is a Black? First of all, what's his color? So, you know, I think the conversation that's being had is like, what sort of privileges do we get as we move towards whiteness? Um, which is which is a conversation that like, yes, a lot of theater isn't really investigating. I think the closest we got was looking at Jeremy's show notes in Slave Play, where he's saying like, what's the difference when Gary is mixed versus when Gary is what, what you would might call blue black right like color changes the way we perceive people like literal physical color and so like what is what where do the racial lines blur because we're ultimately coming down to light versus dark I think that's kind of like the base of it which is really interesting to talk about and is something that isn't explored a lot because it's sort of like well all black people are the same and all white people are the same and brown people, I don't really know what to do with you. And that's so interesting you bring this up. So when I was doing a little bit of research on that 1961 production of it, there was actually a little bit of controversy within like the black acting community when the show was being cast because the director of it was white and this specific director, I forget his name, please forgive me, but he, he was racist, so like whatever. <laughs> so like he said he had this, this thing where like he knew how to pick black actors and like black actors so like one of his things during casting the show was like no black actor could have an ounce of white in them whatever that means so i guess like the way they presented the way they act the way they spoke had to be black black blackly black from his perception of it so a lot of like black actors in the black theater community were upset at that because like how is this white man 
defining what is black and what's not black and who's black enough so that's like interesting that like shade and like what's black and what's blackness spilled over into like the casting process but like he still cast the hell out of the show <laughs> because like that that cast was stacked but like that's an interesting like historical note <laughs> that the director had very problematic ideas of like who was considered black and not black or black enough and the idea that like James Earl Jones is black and a black, 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 but his character and he present very, very, very much latte colored. Mm -hmm. James Earl Jones played village village. So that gets even deeper into the idea that James Earl Jones as an actor, mm -hmm. as a black actor is very light skinned. And so for, for him to have to put on blackface in this show or like to put, you know, shoe polish on his face to make him look more black but then the director also being like but he is still blackity black 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 enough for this show Woo! <sighs> circles circles of logic circles of logic that i don't understand but actually i want to touch on something for a bit because we're talking about light versus dark literally and figuratively and i think the figurative part of this that sort of gets left out of the conversation is the religious aspect of this show mm. so there is a queen who is presiding over this court, the queen played by Maya Angelou, Pfft, iconic. But the other members of this court that are sort of judging um, this troop of actors, this kangaroo court, whatever you want to call it, are a valet, a governor, a judge, and a missionary. They each sort of, you know, represent a faction of white power as it's seen in society. And so a missionary is very interesting, not a priest, but a missionary being the representative of sort of religious power. He sort of builds on this idea that he's been talking about the whole time, which is that God is white. And what we need to be doing is like saving people towards the whiteness, like bring people to the white, <laughs> literally. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just want to talk about that a little bit, especially in context, as we're filming this this week, Lil Nas X's Call Me By Your Name video just came out. Yes. And then I read this play and I was like, let's wow because everyone's getting you know there's some people like i don't even care about the gay thing it's just that he was twerking on the devil and i'm like first of all all of the court gets sent to hell at the end second of all the missionary as a symbol of white power and like how does blackness intersect with salvation there's just so much to talk about so i'd love to unpack that a little bit what are y'all's thoughts well i mean first of all you made the very great distinction of missionary not priest because missionaries have a very tangled relationship with colonialism mm -hmm. an entanglement with colonialism how about that they are colonialism yeah, yeah dra exactly. drag them drag Ryan. Them. don't be afraid okay, okay okay hold on as like uh we all like, saw the book of mormon Ooh, ooh. We, we've already said that we're not going to get to this one yet. Chill, chill, I, chill. I, I didn't say we're going to talk about it. I said we've all seen the Book of Mormon. That's all I said. As like a, a former super into church kid, that, that's why this is a hot take in my book. Colonialism. As in like, yeah, I will give you food and I will help you build a house. But do you want to hear about my white Jesus? So clear in this play, I think. I mean, the missionary has a rant about... Jesus, God is white and God loves white things and everything white pleases God and everything that's less than white, God hates. Like, John Janet really came for the Christians, truly. 
was the missionary the also the character that went on that monologue was like well i can't blame all of africa for these like these issues i forget which character that was there's like one monologue where one white character is basically trying to sort of gaslight the other black characters being like well i guess i can't blame all of africa for y'all being so terrible but i'm still gonna do it anyways hashtag not all africans (laughs) i think it might have been the judge that had that um, i think it was the judge or the governor but but, still but still (laughs) yeah the missionary has so i actually want to read a little bit of the missionary's final monologue so the missionary is one of the people who's at the end of the play getting sent to hell The missionary says, It was I who brought you knowledge of hell. How dare you cast me into it? Why, that's preposterous. Hell obeys me. It opens or closes at a sign from my ringed hand. I have blessed brides and grooms, christened piccaninnies, ordained battalions of black priests, and I brought you the message of the one who was crucified. I understand you, for if the church speaks all languages, she likewise understands them all. You reproach Christ for his color. Let us bear in mind that no sooner was he born than a black prince, who was a bit of a sorcerer, came to adore him. Oof. 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 That one, I so I think part of my my like need to talk about religion was that that monologue like kind of hit me hard, and I don't really know why. Virtue, who is the sort of lover center of the play is often sort of alluded to as being Eve. And so the idea that like virtue and village are Adam and Eve and that the missionary and like the religious structures that we are taught to fear are ultimately the ones that are the weakest. And the people with the power are the ones who can harness sort of the fear that was put into them by institutions, which again, I think of as, I just keep thinking that freaking an incredible little Nas X video because he's using the imagery of hell which has been has put the fear of literal fear of God into gay black brown kids for so long he's like nah you know what hell is actually really cool and we're like I'm gonna take back this narrative of like hell being a place that I burn because I'm gonna burn with pride right like I'm gonna burn knowing that I'm hot and beautiful and sexual that none of that is going to take my power away from me hell doesn't take my power from me um it only takes power from you and like mm-hmm. hell hell can be different things to different people so there was just like a lot of really loaded sort of illusions in this play um religiously that i thought was also very interesting to make a even further parallels between that amazing music video in this play is that little nas x like when he descends into hell he eventually ends up killing satan like he gives him a lap dance to distract him so he can kill him just like sort of like these black actors are playing the clown to distract the white elites so then they they can kill them in the end too so like as little nas x kills the demon the devil that has been going after the gay community that they've been taught to fear that's coming for them for all their lives he liberates them by killing like going to hell liberating them and then you know liberating them from that fear just in the same way where like these black actors play the clown and eventually turn the tables on them and basically free themselves of these white elitists and sends them to hell so like then they can go live their lives and like black can now be known as milk it can be known as sugar it can be known as rice etc etc as Felicity says in her monologue so it's just like that's like a great parallel between that music video and this play and the things that like really um shock me about the play is just like how bold and blatant it is in these ideas and we, we really have to think about the time that it was produced so like in the u.s 
1961. This is during the civil rights movement. And during that time in American society, all protesting was like not <laughs> smiled upon, but the one that like the whites could tolerate was peaceful protesting. And white Americans were very, very afraid of like what we now know as like the black radical tradition where the Black Panther Party considered using like, you know, excessive force to get their rights and get their ways and use violence as a way to get black liberation. That was very much frowned upon. So the fact that like Jean Genet, who used to hang out with the Black Panthers and worked alongside them, would make a play that's so in line with that Black radical tradition and then have an ending that says, you know what, maybe we just need to violently, violently get rid of this system that we have here is like, a really transgressive thing to do during that time. So it's shocking to me that this was the longest running non-musical off-Broadway during the time. And I just, it just makes me think about was, I mean, clearly like the play wasn't successful in getting rid of these stereotypes and these systems because like 50 years later, they're still here. But I'm just thinking like how this play hit people when it's specifically written for white audiences. So I'm gonna assume it was white audiences that made it run for this long. Like it ran for over a thousand performances. So I'm just like, was this play successful in getting its point across? Like how did this sit with white audience members at the time? I'm just very confused about so much that surrounded this play, but also fascinated. I mean, I wonder how much of it, you know, was similar to our modern day audiences, which is a white audience you know, slave play breaking records, just as slave play broke records, mostly on the backs of rich white liberals. I wonder if it's the same phenomenon. Like, that's what makes the most sense to me. It's like 1961, I'm thinking, you know, the berated white liberal hippies being like, you know what we should go do? We should go see the Blacks tonight. No, I've heard it's a really like transgressive piece that like really like makes us sit in our shame. That very much is sort of like what I think of when I think of this play because that I feel like liberal guilt or like, like I think liberal masochism is a big driver, especially white liberal masochism is a big driver of revenue when it comes to these kind of plays. So that's what I think of when I when I think of the reason this play would be so successful. But it also is interesting that since then it's barely been revived. And when it has, it's been overseas that like America hasn't really wanted to touch this play since then. Like when this play premiered, I, I don't know, I think because it's a trial, I think about this, but like Emmett Till had been dead for six years when this play premiered on Broadway. And it's a murder trial. It's a trial of like, black on black crime and black on white crime. I hate black on black crime, but that's like what happens in the play. <laughs> if it was sort of like a bomb to be like, that was really bad, but at least like we're all killing each other, right? So I think there's a lot of different cultural factors that would make that uh, a masochistic uh, night of theater. Mm -hmm. And I should say, um, I didn't mention this in the play history. There was a recent production sometime in the 2000s at a theater in Harlem. I didn't mention it because the, the specifics of it are a little foggy, but that was really interesting because like the theater in Harlem, like their audience members were predominantly people of color. So that's interesting putting- Classical this... theater of Harlem. It's... Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, it's so funny because like this show, like literally in the show notes before you even start reading the text says, this is for the whites. If you do it for a black audience, make sure you center white people. And I think that production similar to the one in London was updated. So like they didn't do it straight, like 
how the 1961 production was done. So it's interesting that it's not very much produced. And when people do bring it back, they update or modernize it or change it in some way, which is fascinating. So do you feel like there's something like what, like if you were to imagine to do a production in the modern day, would you think about changing it? Or do you feel like it can be done as is? Is there something to people bringing it back, changing it? I feel like this is just really leading into our last question. So you know, maybe we just go for it and, and have that conversation right now. I think very much like Shakespeare, classical theater often feels that it needs to be reinvented in order to be relevant. That pure text is not going to connect with people. And especially something like theater of the absurd feels like there needs to be some sort of like entryway in modern times in order for people to come see it. So it makes sense to me that a, a modern director would want to like give people a sort of starting point that is more modern because again but all of us had trouble reading this play this play is an absolute beast to get through it can be very confusing so i understand that need to do that i think as a director i would honestly want to do it straight just because i i would want to see what that yields it with a modern cast i think that trying to add more to it isn't what it needs with the idea of like rap or spoken word as part of this that is another element of like to me of minstrelsy rap being consumed as black art mainly often being largely consumed by white people like does having it be rap make it more accessible to white people in a modern day i don't know but i would i would love to see it done straight just to see what it's what's still there for an audience to grab that's not explicitly modern it can be produced um i think it should be produced just as sort of a continuation of giving like black stories their due even if like mm, that's a little iffy because john janet is not a black person i feel like absurdism is very much in the bones of young people right now like all of our memes all of our humor is very much based in like shit that makes no sense like fucking spongebob memes being like ultra pixelated and it says like walkie slush and everyone's like oh this shit hits hard like we are absurdist thinking right now so i think this would be a very interesting play to bring back in its original form and see what we can still take from it i also think this play deserves its due again it's interesting because part of me wants a more palatable sense of it for audiences and for myself and then part of me also is like fuck palatable let's do it i definitely think this play can and should be produced and i think that it'll just require the right directing the right theater the right marketing like every other play that we talk about really you need to do it with a certain touch i think yeah, it's such an interesting question um, in terms of like season planning. If Do you or do you not program the show? Because like we said, like this hasn't really gotten its time after that original U.S. production. It's popped up in a few places after then, but it's not one that's widely produced. And it almost seems, even in a bit, sort of lost in our theater history discussions because I didn't know about this play until Cicely Tyson passed away, May She Rest in Power. Yeah, so that's like the first time I learned about it because this was one of the the big theater shows that she was in. So like I asked myself, do I do this or do I just do one of the plays that was inspired by this? Like, like Fairview or maybe Slave Play, not saying that Jackie or Jeremy 
they haven't said that they were inspired by the blacks and that's why they wrote their plays but just like going like just reading all of them and talking about them we can see the connection so it's just like maybe just do one of those but yeah i think it can be produced part of me just wants to put white people through the ringer and like do a theater festival that's just like beat down white people and make them see these shows in succession like the blacks <laughs> slave play and fairview back to back to back and then when they walk out just like hand them the communist manifesto or something like that i think if you're an artistic director or a curator you're going to have those discussions of like do you do this show about blackness that's written by a white man or just do a play that's similar to this and has the same ideas that's done by a black playwright it's up to you if you're already programming a lot of black playwrights maybe you can scoop this one in so yeah, I mean, just have a conversation, but it can be done. That sort of wraps up a conversation about the Blacks. But we decided that the Blacks and Le Blanc, since Le Blanc by Lorraine Hansberry is very much a sort of direct response to the Blacks, we decided that we would do a two-part classical investigation of these pieces together. So uh, next week we're doing a modern play, but the week after that, we will be reading Le Blanc by Lorraine Hansberry. So these two episodes, this episode and that episode will sort of go hand in hand. We will definitely be referencing conversations we had in this episode to sort of explore the legacy of these ideas, a conversation between a white male playwright and a black female playwright on similar themes. So come back for that episode in two weeks. And thank you so much for joining us on this episode this week. It has been woo, a time and a half, but obviously this play still has a lot of building blocks that are very, very relevant. So thank you so much for listening. As always, please hit us up on socials for questions, comments, uh, more play suggestions. We love to have your play suggestions and we will see y'all next week.